0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Raptors Weekly Podcast. This is, I guess, the first episode of the offseason, technically, where, I don't know, we'll try and figure out how to cover the Raptors in an interesting lens as they navigate what's going to be probably a very active offseason that has big decisions ahead of them to help me talk about it. Michael Grange of Sportsnet, who is a, a seminal figure in covering the Raptors, <laughs> has been there since the, well, their, their first game, is there now. Mike? How the hell are you? I'm good,
1: Samson. Appreciate you having me on. And uh, let's see if we can uh, make any sense of uh, what's happened and what might happen. How's that?
0: I I got a really great statistic for you. So if the Raptors shot from the free throw line in that Bulls game, (laughs) your career average at Mount Allison They would have won the game by one point.
1: That's all it takes. So, yeah, so they shot, what, 55%? If they shot, made two more free throws, whatever, four more?
0: Something like that. So the first thing I want to ask you, actually, is kind of the Nick Nurse stuff, since that's a lot of what's kind of been hanging around. I've had opinions on him, mostly relaying to, you know, is the defensive structure sustainable? Is there enough going on offensively? He's kind of hands-off in some regard. And then there's been, like, I guess... Interpersonal stuff is how he talks about players in media relative to other coaches, but what has been your, cause you've covered him his full time there. What's your stance on nurse over the time and his relationship with the team now?
1: Um, first of all, I think he's been a really good coach, right? I don't think that's a, makes me you know, much of a, I don't think it's all that far out of an opinion. Yeah. And I think the things that he's done well are pretty well, pretty well documented. And it's interesting if you look at the five years, how he's kind of had to adjust and change. And I think he's done that pretty successfully. If you look at the team that won, um, that's uh, clearly like very dramatically different than the team he's had the last couple of years. And but not just in talent. Right. But very much in style. Right. Mm -hmm. Like and with that, the team that won, especially you were toggling between completely different identities, depending on the availability of of uh, Kawhi and then you had, you know, the arrival of Gasol and that kind of ushered in a whole new range of possibilities. And, um, you know, I think he navigated that incredibly well, especially given the scrutiny and pressure, right? Like he was, you know, he was, I'm not sure if he was or was not their first choice as head coach, um, but he was an unknown commodity at the NBA level and, you know, he nailed it. And then obviously we all know the next year, if anything, I thought his identity came through even more. And I would say his identity was maybe first introduced with the bench mob in 18, 17, 18, like that way he had his fingerprints all over that group. And you saw that come to, I think it's fullest expression in in, the 1920 season. So that's all obviously great stuff. Um, But I think he's gone as coaches can, do, like, I think he's got a lot more conservative in some ways in how he's uh, used his roster the last couple of years, especially. Um, I think he, you know, I think you get full marks for just trying to grind out wins any way you can. I mean, that is the job, but um, I think there has, you know, I think it's there's been a lot of short-term um valuation regarding players that's kind of come up and hurt them in the last couple of years. I mean, you know, we're probably going to tackle with the Raptors bench and for good reason, it's, you know, just has not been that productive at all this season and you could make the case, well, cause they're not very good, right? Like, I mean, you can go through each player and go, well, you know, where would he fit in another rotation? But, you know, when you look at it and I touched on that history with the bench mob going back when he's still Dwayne's assistant, um, you know, that group had a great runway. They had consistent co- you know, cohesion within themselves. They had great, consistent playing time, even within the context of a very good team. And the results are still paying off. Right. Like all those guys, you can, we enlist them like incredible. Um, but is it chicken or egg? Right. So when you look at how little they've got out of the bench this season and last, well, you, you know, you could say, well, every time we play X, Y, or Z, it hurts us. But, you know, I, I wonder what would have happened if they said, you know, we're gonna go with X, Y, and Z. We're gonna roll up these minutes and we're gonna take our lumps and hopefully grow. And, and maybe had they done that, you'd have a more viable solution in your rotation. You'd also have more valuable assets within your roster. And, you know, this, maybe this season, tune would be a little bit different so i think that's been a weakness and in terms of the way he's kind of called out players and not called out players um you know i'm very comfortable i think it's fine you're in the nba you've got a lot of scrutiny if you're used to it you should be able to handle it if you can't maybe find another line of work um but within the context of um most things are almost whenever possible. What's said publicly has been addressed privately, and what's you know if the you know there, I guess there's a time and place to kind of use the media some magical way. I don't know exactly what it is, uh, but if it's kind of a habit that guys are kind of hearing, but their shortcomings not directly from you in the first place, you know I don't think that's a great trade. I don't think it bodes. You know I just don't think it's good, right? Like I mean what's to stop them from starting to tell the public their concerns about you, right? Like it's, it's just a bad way to do business. Um, again, so I'm not advocating for coaches just to never say anything bad about their players, but you know, it should be most of the time it should start with, yeah, we had a conversation about this and it's a big problem and we've got to, you know, we're going to continue trying to address it. Okay. Right. But when it's, you know, Chris Boucher is like, no, you know, you hear that over and over again where guys roll in the rotation would change or move or whatever it might be. And, and you'd ask them and the answer was typically no, you know, I just got to the gym and found out or whatever it might be. So I don't think that's great. Um, and then, you know, to the kind of biggest question, which is how much I think is as you're asking is how much is how he's kind of adhered to a certain way of style of play. How much has it help them or cost them? I kind of give Nick, credit for it. I actually do see it mostly as a positive. Um, You know, he's been pretty transparent, certainly the last couple of years and this year, particularly about how they want to play, what their goals are. And you know, that line, key performance indicators, right? Like, I mean, they've they've checked, 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 right? Like writ large, they've won the possession battle, like no team in the league this year and uh, no team did last year. So if you're a head coach and this is what you're presenting as the way we're going to play basketball in this league and you keep nailing all those uh, measuring sticks, um, I think you deserve credit for that. Um, The bigger question is, you know, once it's shown that it's what we don't know is had you kind of said, you know what, we're going to change course uh, with this group, with this roster. What it would look like. And, you know, this sort of begs the question maybe he should have, maybe he should have tried something. I think if you, you know, I don't think that would have worked either, personally. I'm, I'm, you know, but, but so big picture, I think, you know, he's shown a lot. I think he's shown some strain the last couple of years. I think he's been way too conservative on how he's used a second unit or developed one. Um, but I don't think we can sit here and, and bash him for, delivering a style of play that you know he set out to deliver and by the way we've seen even in the playoffs so far has you know can really work if you can shoot a little bit
0: (laughs) I think yeah the disconnect has typically been that the Raptors seem to be kind of artificially or jerry-rigging their way to the possession differential when they were looking at the statistics what was it that it's like eighty percent of teams that win the possess- possession differential by five or more win the game, and so the Raptors, those teams, won the possession differential, but they did it playing a different style that didn't kind of fetishize it. It was a byproduct, and the Raptors were like, "We want that as the product," and they left. behind Let's us miss again. as many shots as we can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's and kind and so,
1: the, uh, think of all the offensive rebounds. Yeah, but you exactly. gotta give them credit. I think you know they do force the turnovers. They do, uh, you know, partly because they don't pass. They do take care of the ball. Um, you know, they don't turn it over, So I give them credit for that. And, um, but, you know, the flip side of that is, is I talked to assistant coaches at various points in the year, and, and they would say, look, there is no plan defensively. You know, this is, these are opposing assistant coaches. It's like as long as you can beat that first pressure, whatever shape or form it comes in, you're four on three and maybe better, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's shown in the the opposing field goal numbers, right? Um, so, you know, that's maybe where you have to wonder if if there's some attention to detail not taken care of. And obviously that's why they went and got Pirtle, et cetera.
0: And they, well, after... But game, finishing
1: it is a, fetishizing is a good word. It's like, you know, it's kind of like in hockey when they got, when Corsi was introduced, right? Puck possession became a really big thing. And, you know, you'd have players... Uh, like kind of gimmicking the way you play to sort of pump up some of these analytics mm-hmm. so they'd have a, a better case of contract time, like they dumped the puck in at certain times or whatever. You know, so there's, so there's a little bit, I don't think the Raptors are doing it that much because I think they missed shots quite honestly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I see what you're, it's a, not a bad way of putting it. And another one
0: is third baseman plays closer to the line so that he takes away the extra base hits Um, for his war but you let more (laughs) singles go through like the the hole or whatever that's there's always a way to game it but that is the interesting part is that the Raptors probably Nick Nurse as you said there's conservative aspects to it there's a lack of developing the bench but as far as getting the most out of what is I think a very limited roster the way they played certainly worked last year the amount of minutes they played As far as like hacking net rating, it's almost the same thing as missing shots for possession differential. You play your best players more minutes, you win more minutes, you win more games. Um, Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet probably bore the brunt of that physically more than most players would. Um, Really high ranking in miles traveled, in minutes played, and for Pascal, isolations, closeouts, the whole deal. But the limited roster, they have a guy coming off the bench, sixth man, who is gonna try and probably get like 25 million dollars a year they have precious achua who man last year shooting 44 percent on catch and shoot threes after the all-star break was kind of you know a, a defender you could throw out against a bunch of different players and had success against superstars they have and chris boucher is i think objectively a good bench player in the nba that's at least eight deep and yet they lose the 9 10 i kind of want to talk about with free agency looming the fact that the raptors are supposed to have a good roster you go look at each player and say these guys are good why are they underperforming what do you think this team should look like after you know free agency is over like what do, what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah it's funny i mean um because i kind of agree i think you do go through their top seven or eight guys and go yeah that guy's got this this that um but, you know, if, if we're just talking roster construction, um, you know, here's so a little stat for you, uh, probably not quite as <laughs> in-depth as some of yours, but, but, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks, now it's always not fair to compare your team to the best team, arguably, in the league. But the Bucks, I think they have 13 players on their roster averaging at least one made three a game. Or maybe, it's, no, sorry, it's 12, mm-hmm. right? Um, and of those 12, 10 of them, are shooting league average or better. The two guys who aren't are Packinotten, who shot forty percent last year, and Chris Middleton, who's thirty-nine percent for his career. The Raptors have how many guys make have made one made average one made three this year? Maybe four. Yeah, exactly four. And of those, how many of them are better than league average from three? One. Two. So, oh, Gary, Gary and just OG. above league average. Right. And OGU's had a pretty good What What is league average this year? Yeah, 36 on the nose, I think. Oh, okay.
0: oh, yeah. Gary hit 36.
1: 36 Nine. Yeah. So, yeah, barely. Yeah. Um, you know, that's oversimplifying it. But the same story, you know, when I was in Boston at the end of the season there, it was the same story. I mean, Boston had three guys, three guys in their top six out each game, and they still had multiple lineups. With a minimum three real three-point shooters on the team. Now, those are championship teams. Teams, they're built up, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're loaded. They're they're going for it. But I mean, that's to me, and you wrote about this, I thought, really well earlier this week. I mean, that's the story of this team, is you can't shoot. <laughs> and and like everything you do tactically is to try and Disguise the fact that you can't shoot or compromise for, or compensate for it. And, um, you know, and so to ask your question, going into free agency or in terms of next steps of roster building, if they don't address that, I don't see really how anything changes. I mean,
0: can I ask you then if, if we're because I just I joined the beat this year. Basically, I got to hear things a couple of years just being in this fear um, a little bit more this season. But as far as covering the Raptors over this time, seeing that that active bet on we can develop shooting and the fact that not only did the league change in kind of devaluing set shooters because a bunch of teams got really good at running guys off the line, motion shooters at 37% became way more important than a set shooter at 41%, for example. But what did you make of the Raptors bet on shooting, kind of looking back on that, being able to develop it?
1: well they're not the only team that's tried it right um you know that was a big part of the process with the sixers i think to an extent oklahoma city's doing it this year or is in the process of doing that um you know even going back when shooting wasn't as you know high value you know those old bucks teams not the old bucks teams but the you know the larry sanders era bucks where they really were to me the first team that really um made you know kind of length to be a primary defensive weapon across their lineup. Um, you know, that that was part of their thing too. Um, and I'm not sure it's really worked all that well. Like, I think there's some indi- individual, uh, success stories there always are, <clears throat> but in terms of turning a team of average to non-shooting prospects to a team of average to better than average shooting prospects, I can't think of many examples. And, um, you know, so I, I would think it's kind of an ill-advised bet. Like in retrospect, uh, you know, OG Ananobi, you know, he's probably the primary example of a guy who's really developed as a, into a, like a legitimate, you know, top 25 shooter. And Norm would be the other guy, mm-hmm. but you know, you're always a little cautious as to how much of that is through the team or through the individual. And, you know, Norm in particular, that guy was just an incredible grinder. And yeah. I would watch his pregame shooting workouts. And I remember very clearly, you know, probably maybe his second year in the league. And, you know, I think I, I watched him. It was one of the best shooting workouts I've ever seen. And just telling him, man, that's, that's, that was awesome. Like I was like, just as a fan almost, That was incredible to watch. And sure enough, he's probably a top 15 or 20 shooter in the league right now and has been for a few years. So, but outside of that, Um, you know, it's pretty slim. Right. And, uh, they've invested in the analytics side with the NOAA stuff and in theory, Nick's himself is, you know, a bit of a guru in the area. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's not something that seems to be easy to develop. And I think we also point out that the, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that the Bucks have such a high team shooting percentage when you consider, you know, you got four guys running at Giannis, most possessions. So you're getting a lot of, you know, pretty good looks. And I don't think in the Raptors case, how many cases are, is the defense collapsing Sprinting out to a guy with a seat fed, you know, speed set just waiting wide open. It's not like a big like you don't have to oversell. sell you sell out defensively against Toronto, I don't think, as much as you do against other teams. And There's that affects also, the quality yeah, shots you're getting. It's kind of interesting thinking
0: about what are the shooters being able to kind of prep themselves for a shot. And it's probably easier for, you know, that side top side action that the Bucks get a lot of, you know. Giannis collapsed the defense goes out of the corner shoots up above the break goes out to either the above the break on the other side or to the other corner and they can have like there's a lot of preparation and knowing the ball is coming your way but a lot of the Raptors open three-point shots are off of doubles and one pass away and you're kind of trying to navigate that space as a cutter or a shooter that is not as easy to kind of prep for it and I think yeah the Raptors are missing out on a lot of rhythm threes which helps bump up Mediocre shooters into average shooters, average shooters into good shooters, and I think that's something they're missing on in big time.
1: And no, I, I agree. It's shooting part. talent too. I think you're you're dead on, if, and you know to that point, like how do you get them? You got to get the defense in rotation somehow, some way. I mean, you know what's interesting is you know we, we heard Nick talk about this. You know their expected points per shot, right? This XPPP this mythical number that's out there. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's great. Our XPPP is great. And I'm like, okay, I guess, you know, but I mean, if, if, uh, you know, if it keeps finding Scotty in the corner and he's a below average, you know, catch and shoot three shooter,
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Overall. And and not, and like, and again, those numbers are consistent with wide open catch and shoots as well. Right. Like it's, yeah. it's his whole package. Um, well, they're you know they probably have a high XPP because people aren't closing out. So like, why bother? Like we that's that's a good shot for us. If you're going to take that, that's good for us. We'd much rather have Scotty do that than you know shoulders downhill at speed with power into our defense. Um, so you know, I, I mean, I think uh, you know I do think it is a roster issue overall, and and then and not one that's that's happened overnight either so it the this is kind of something
0: that everybody's talked about is that the glut of wings who are really good defensively well pascal had like a really down part of the season OG pascal not, is conceivably
1: really good defensively
0: yeah he, he can like ratchet it up scotty has had nice week like a week at a time where the closeout footwork is pretty good like he uses his length and it's just not at the level. Nobody's at the level of OG, obviously. But this all kind of becomes tenable if somebody outside of OG is shooting the ball well. And Pascal, he'll be thirty by the time the next season starts. I think he'll be looking for a new contract.
1: Scotty, I don't I think, think Pascal just turned twenty nine. Okay, so he's yeah. soon to turn twenty nine. So he'll right, be right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So
0: you know, if if we're talking about developmental curves. Pascal, as much as he preaches the work and everybody sees the work at some point that turns from development into maintenance for players who knows when that comes for Pascal, but as far as expecting the shooting on the roster to improve, it's probably not likely. I don't know how comfortable you are trying to you know, step outside of this and do like the, the team building. But if you had like, you could put together a dream situation for the Raptors. What way do they operate going forward? What types of players are they bringing in? Yeah, I mean, I've said this lots of times. I
1: think that they need to be in a situation where they're building their base of <clears throat> players and or draft picks. Like, I don't think they have enough. I don't think they have nearly enough. Um, you know, the simplest, you know, I was, someone asked this. I was on radio last week or so, you know, and I know this stuff is hard to quantify. I was like, no, it's not hard to quantify. You don't have enough players. You don't have enough good players. That's as simple as I can put it. And I don't see an obvious path for them to get more good players um, absent, you know, turning one of their very good players into, you know, a couple of really good players and maybe a pick or two, and maybe you might have to repeat that process. So that all of a sudden you're sitting on, you know, maybe you don't have quite the high end, but you have a broader depth, and you've got some prospect in your pipe, your pipe, you know, your prospect pools deeper and richer. You maybe have a couple of additional picks, and you know, I we've all seen that work, right? Like that was the formula worked up to two seven, you know, seventeen, eighteen and then when the time came you had that team could have done anything they could have stayed put and won 60 games again and maybe you know had better luck in the playoffs they they chose to um, make two huge trades and still as a result those trades had plenty of you know depth and versatility in the roster to win not to mention adding the best player in the game at the time so um so that's what i would do i would take Um, like one of your key guys and, you know, just based on their, where they're all at contractually, it's probably, it's either OG and Pascal and based on their ages, (laughs) you know, it kind of comes down to Pascal. Right. And I'm not trying to run him out of town. I mean, he's been an incredible story and I've got, I could talk all day about what, you know, things to an organization should relish about Pascal Siakam, but in the hard business of basketball, that's kind of, would be to me a bit of a shortcut to kind of regaining some equilibrium in your roster, regaining some, uh, you know, some flexibility within your overall pool of talent, be it draft picks or players. And uh, and then just accept that it's from there, it's gonna be probably another couple of steps. And, you know, that's that's sort of what I would do. And obviously within that, you know, you'd want to prioritize acquiring some guys who could shoot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and and ideally, you know, a huge upgrade at two guard. No, defense, no disrespect to Gary Trent Jr., but he can't be your starter. Um, so you want a guy who's super athletic there who can really shoot it, who, you know, has upside. Um, you know, you'd want to find a really, really good pack, backup point guard who can, you know, you know, go on, right? Not that it has to be him, but a version of him—a guy who can start for you and do well. A guy you can play along your starter and do well. Andrew Nampar, somebody like sure, that. yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> let's keep dreaming. Um, you know, but but like that kind of stuff. And you know, and what would you lose in doing that? You'd lose, you know, a twenty-five point a game scorer who's been All NBA, All Star. Um, but you know, I don't think you're. You know, again, and barring some real luck this year in the draft, either by moving up and getting a great pick or getting a great pick at wherever they end up picking, um, I'm not sure where you what other wiggle room you have.
0: So they're basically luxury tax. Well, they're guaranteed luxury tax. They bring everybody back. I don't care how good the negotiations go. Right. They're they're in the luxury tax. Pascal, I think, just to couch what you were saying. There's a there's a way that it seemed like it was viable in the past that if if Scotty made the leap early, if Fred was shooting fantastic and still really sticky at the point of attack, if OG's creation, if everybody took that little bit of step, then it made sense to keep your all NBA player on the roster. But if the Raptors ceiling is no longer very high and as you kind of laid out like there's not really a conceivable way to Im- improve the back end of the roster. And the top end of the roster isn't so much of world beaters that it makes the back end irrelevant. Kind of like the Suns, right? Like the right. Suns will still, they'll be in, they'll be in it. Their, their bench is not very good, but they'll be in it. Um, Pascal is just because of the way the contracts line up. OG, the team that wanted to trade for him at the deadline, they already lost a playoff run that they would have got with him. Fred isn't, you know, whether he signs, whether he, it takes the option or not, whatever, but Probably not on contract. Gary, not on contract. Jakob not on contract. It's like it points one way, and it's once again the Raptors, not from a position of strength the same way they were in 2017-18, but they their hand is being forced a little bit here. Um, I'm curious, do you like Jakob Purtle as the center next to Scotty Barnes? This is something people talk about just because of the lack of shooting, but um what do, you, what do you like about their dynamic and what do you think needs to improve?
1: Um, like, obviously, the hesitation, neither, neither of them can really shoot. So they're kind of, and it's funny not to always live in the past, but um, a big reason they had to move away from DeMar DeRozan, there was more than one, but a really big one, was him and Jonas Valanciunas breathed the same air, right? They needed to be in the same places roughly the same time. It made it very complicated uh, in the guts of big games or the guts of any game because, you know, they were both trying to be in that 16-foot radius. In JV's case, to either roll and finish or in DeMar's to either pull up or, or get to the rim. Um, so those conditions exist again, right? They're just different kinds of players. I think uh, all that said, like, it, JV and DeMar were part of a pretty good team, mm-hmm. pretty effective, so there is a way you can do it. And I think, you know, I think Jonas, or sorry, Jakob is, you know, super high OQ, super expert at kind of minimizing, you know, the the impact of his lack of spacing. And, you know, and I think, uh, you know, Scotty has just, you know, he can, he's just such a horse, you know, he can kind of overcome some of that too. So, um, I think it, those guys can work together for a lot of good reasons, but around them you just had, need so much. You yeah. need three shooters, like three really good. Yeah, I guess you'd have OG in theory. You might have Fred, and then whoever that next person would have to be, like they couldn't be, you know. And again, that speaks to why Pascal and Scotty and OG and, or sorry, sorry Pascal, Scotty, and Jacob are kind of it's a little it's a little crowded in there. I, I asked
0: I asked Nick about that. You know the limitations and he he had said that like well they're better shooters than i had thought and i i didn't think that was necessarily true but i thought that it was what i wanted to hear was what he thought the passing could do to unlock things and the raptors with Jakob and og in particular they ran like horns flex the flex screen for og to come open off of fred and then they ran it out of the elbow alignment if teams were cheating it and like that's just good coaching that's that's like a great setup but I wonder how much easier it gets if they do have, like, if Scotty moves to the four and they have at the three and the two and the one, just. Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, there's potential there, but then also like, you know, then you're turning Scotty into a guy who lives in the dunker spot. Right. Like, and he's good at that. He can do it. But like, is really, is that how you're elevating and getting the most out of what you, we all still believe, or they certainly hope is a really, really special talent. That's where, that's another factor that goes into all of this is, is you know, at some point Scotty's got to put up or shut up, right? Like it's got to be like this guy is a guy who can lift your whole team, and you know, but and the way to find that out is you probably got to give it to him in a way, and um, you know, and it, so yeah, so I, I think I think it's just complicated with the three of them. I thought. Pascal and Yakub did some good stuff together too, right? Like, I mean, there's if anything, they maybe are a smoother fit as a pick and roll tandem. I don't think Pascal's quite as good a passer, but he's pretty good. Um, but he's got the stronger mid-range, so there's a little more, you know, pull-up action to be had there. But uh, but then what do you do with Scotty? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I just think it's um it's just a little bit awkward unless, you know, some again if you added if your fifth starter was some version of uh joe harris pre-ankle injury that's probably fine (laughs) it would probably work out okay before we kind of
0: just talk about basketball in general i have a few questions about the canadian basketball the league at large for whatever team it looks like the raptors have do you think nick nurse will be the one coaching it next season
1: i kind of go back and forth every day you know there was a point i said no it's done he's gone um i think there's a couple of complicated you know this is again something i discussed on the radio is there's a couple of complicating factors here and you know one of them is you know the raptors aren't going to fire Nick. i don't think um they're not in the business of swallowing nine million and hoping he finds another job to offset that uh you know it's not like they wouldn't do it but i'd be very surprised if that's what they do So a little bit this is dependent on and i think was driven by nick kind of you know trying to find his next best landing spot right like and and you and i can sit here and we have sat here and said you know what's the trajectory of the raptors the next three to four years like there's some possibility i guess that they hit it and they kind of become everyone's darling again but it's less likely than Mm -hmm. than the other scenario and so if you're looking at your coaching prime you know you want to attach yourself to something that's got some upside that you can win either now or soon and um you know so i think that is was real i think that's that's part of what was happening here um and i think probably also real is you know when you got a team a guy going into last year's deal you've got a team that's got to start you can't be caught flat-footed like you have to understand what the marketplace is and who your next options might be so I think that explains a lot of the noise that we've heard the last month or so. Um, he's also more entrepreneurial than he is entrepreneurial. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, Nick's like, he's not shy, right? Like he's not sitting, oh, I hope the Lakers job would come open. Cause maybe they think of me, he's like, you know, let's make that job come open. And, you know what I mean? Like he's, he's aggressive. Um, again, not reporting that just, <laughs> um, So, but this is the scenario. The other scenario, right, is these jobs don't come open as, you know, in the kind of order that serves Nick's purposes, in the timing that serves the Raptors' purposes. And they both could end up kind of going, well, you need me and I need you. (laughs) So let's try and figure this out. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's impossible. Um, It would probably require some sort of, you know, check to be written from MLSC, maybe not a five-year, $50 million extension, like I'm sure Nick would hope to get at his next job. But, you know, maybe some compromise is available in there. Again, just speculating. Um, because, you know, I don't think, you know, Nick wants, you know, I don't think the Raptors want to fire Nick. And I don't think uh, Nick wants to quit. I think we can guarantee that. Like there's a little bit too much incentive on each side. <laughs> so, um you know so i think it, it's gonna to have to be something where um you know nick's next step is quite evident and it get and it kind of happens a little bit smoothly and then the raptors can kind of move on to their plan b whatever it might be do you think that's why
0: the the front office hasn't really spoken much since the season ended like they're uh, kind
1: of a little bit of that like i think it'd be awkward for them for them to come out today and you know we'd all sit there and you know all we want to talk about for was nick and all they could awesome. say is we don't know um so you know i think that that they are they have a lot of stuff to figure out they really do as it's obvious to us and so i think for them they're best served by taking the time necessary to really understand what is in front of them and what their options are and you know, why do that to serve our purposes? You know, like yeah. why? So, I, you know, I, I presume, it, you know, I don't think we'll hear from this week, you know, I wouldn't be shocked at all if it wasn't even, you know, if it wasn't next week either. I think there's a lot of, what was Nick's timeline back in Philly, you know, gonna take a couple of weeks <laughs> <laughs> after the season. So they're they're in reflecting, They're, they're all, everyone's reflecting right now. Right. So the other thing I wanna to talk to you
0: about is you and I have sat and we've shared some press rooms this year asked coaches about the changing league, changing play styles, changing personalities, and just from somebody who you've played competitive basketball, you've covered the Raptors for some time now, you've you've covered other teams, you've been all over the sport. What is the number one change you've seen from the time you started covering it to now?
1: Like in basketball
0: terms? In basketball terms.
1: Um player skill. Player skill. Like it's unbelievable, right? And the you know that whole um science if you want to call it that to um creating advantages off the dribble is something that was you know i remember you know baron davis right and or tim hardaway and you look at their crossovers and and you know how devastating they were and how kind of wow you know and, you know, Iverson, of course, um, you know, but that's standard operating procedure now, right? If you're a high skill ball handler, doesn't matter size, um, you've got not just those moves, but like counters to those moves and sequencing of those moves. And then that is, of course, is introduced with, um, you know, a packaging of passing options that you know any really really good player can kind of tap into based on whatever situation they're in on the floor and of course the whole shooting element is you know as pervasive as that is in the range of the shooting so you know those things that we kind of take for granted now are standard you know for an NBA player and then you might not have it all coming out of college or the, or whatever per stream you're coming from although more and more do um you know shade and sharp is a pretty good example right like there's a guy who didn't play college barely played high school mm-hmm. um and after you know after spending 50 games standing in a corner except when he could you know someone could send him for a break and a dunk uh you know all of a sudden he's he looks like he's been in the league 12 years, right? Like I'm not talking about all the decisions he may or may not be making, his defensive acumen, all these other elements, but in terms of his skill, right? Yes. And, and Anthony Simons would be another one. And, and like, it's on and on and on. And and we've got the chance to see that pregame. We get a glimpse into how much deliberate effort and is put into building those skills and then applying them in kind of game sequences. And, uh, you know, that wasn't happening, you know, 20 years ago. Do you think
0: that that level of skill is ultimately what's led to the parity
1: of the NBA now?
0: That's a good point. I, mean? I was kind of thinking about that
1: recently, like, <clears throat> you know, forever, if you had, you know, your top five or eight or nine player in the league and maybe two of those guys, you're winning. Like it just, you know, there wasn't, but now I'm not sure that, Like I'm like obviously the gap between Kevin Durant and humans is more guys can break a game open, but but yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But what was the number? uh, I think I heard David the Pelicans. I think they had four guys who scored thirty-five points, four guys who scored forty points this year, and eight or nine guys who scored thirty. Like in in winning games, in games that they won, like that's that's pretty crazy. Right. And you look at that roster and you're not going, you know, Brandon Ingram. okay, Zion. Yeah. After that, it's a lot of pretty good players. And yet, you know, they they're a lot of them have the ability to, you know, eat your lunch on a given night. So so I think I do think that that's a factor and it's going to be interesting to trace as it gets a little harder to either build or maintain these super high end rosters. um, If. Maybe we are headed for real parity in the league, which you know is you know I haven't seen almost in you know like almost my career whole career,
0: yeah, it's well, it's really interesting, right? because it's if you give Jalen Noel, for example, now I'm not saying Jalen Noel has the same career arc as RJ. Barrett, but if you give them the same, and he's certainly not as good defensively for you know spurts and stretches, but if you give Jalen Noel the same usage as R j. Barrett, I think you're probably coming close to the same production offensively and the salaries between that is just like astronomical no that's a
1: that's no i i that's uh that's a that's that's a strong point right is is you know how much value are you getting per dollar past a certain point right and it's it's diminishing and uh you know and i think you know so i do and and i think the other factor that's, is the guys who maybe aren't quite as capable of adding this super, super high-end skill, you know, they're getting drafted and turning into the very rare humans who can kind of screw that skill up. Right. So you're Jaden McDaniels or, you know, these, these incredibly rangy Herb Jones, right. Like these super rangy, tough, difficult guys who, you know, have, like a little bit of kryptonite they can kind of lob into the equation right so um you know so yeah i think i think it'd be interesting to see if if the parity we've seen this year becomes more the more of it especially as what we would define as the most elite guys in this league age out right like i mean we're heading for that and you know so is you know is shay who's probably i think the best of the young guys he's He's, I say,
0: I've been, I've been big on Shea forever. I think he could win an MVP. He's there's nobody like him in the history of the league. He's just
1: so. I mean, if like I would say he's probably the number one or two trade asset in the league, right? Based on yeah. his age, contract, production, everything. Raptors <laughs> should do that, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll take the franchise, we'll take Shea. Um, you know, but with the point I'm kind of getting to is will in his career being Shea enough to win a title, You're right? Oh, being Shea plus some guys be enough. It might not be. It might be being Shea plus a bunch of guys, plus good health, plus a lot of luck. You might get one, you know. But the idea that, that you know, the best player in the league is going to wrap up four or five, six titles in his prime, we might not see that.
0: I, I do wonder if because the, there's rings culture everybody talks about right and in baseball it's less about that it's more so it's like we have to keep the window open if the run happens it happens but we have to put ourselves in a position to repeatedly make an attempt at that run and basketball is just not like that it's like you win or you lost you loser like it's it's pretty harsh terms for those top end guys I wonder if people are just going to be more about like windows and especially you look at like the the Warriors are having a lot of trouble with the Kings. The Raptors, the way they, this, the Raptors were made specifically in a lab to defend, dribble handoff actions, and make them more difficult and push teams into the...
1: Back OG team. versus DeMontis Abonis was not a good matchup for DeMontis exactly.
0: <laughs> And the Raptors are not, this year, just not a good team. And the defending champs are like, how the hell do we defend these actions when we're playing, like, instead of Pascal and OG and Scotty and these these guys who are you know well equipped to defend that specific action we have like jordan pool and steph curry and on the other side you want to, we we're talking about really great two guards that the raptors maybe should have gone after malik monk oh my days you know like there's just the talent is burgeoning everywhere it's i wonder if it switches from uh the weak link because that's kind of what it was is like your weakest link on the floor to just like what's your strongest link you know
1: it's that's yeah. what i wonder yeah, no, and I, but and I think we are, I think we have a little bit, and we are moving off of, you know, he didn't win a ring because, it, it, you know, it's always a, stu- a stupid argument because there's guys who played their whole career where only Michael Jordan won a ring, right? And, you know, so okay, does that mean Carmelo wasn't good? I, uh, um, you know, and so now you're in an environment. I guess you could go the other way, right? If if all of a sudden there's ten teams, and given you might think about winning a ring, and at that, and you can't get your one in that situation, well maybe <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe it does hurt your cause. I don't know. But it's, But I mean, I think overall, like I think we're speaking the same language. I think uh, there's there's a lot of really good players, and hence I think more competitive teams.
0: I think the last thing I want to talk about, provided you have the time, is sure. jo- Jonathan Chen, who I know you've read some of his work. Team Canada basketball Oren also does really great work but you've been covering Canada basketball for a long time now and you're very familiar with the players the the coaches the grassroots aspect of it i kind of want to just introduce everybody listening to your thoughts on Canada's order of operations over the next little while what you think about you know the team headed into yeah. the Olympics soon
1: it, well if they can't get again, the, if they can't get to the Olympics from the platform they'll have this summer I don't know, (laughs) right? Because, you know, forever, you know, coming out of the Americas was tough, right? You had Brazil was at times very, very good. Argentina was for years. were very, very good. Of course, the United States. So, you know, and then there's a Puerto Rico or, you know, Mexico would pop up and they'd be tough too. Those circumstances don't really exist, right? It's, It's the United States who, by the way, are more vulnerable than we've known them to be. And that's it. Like not to say these other teams aren't capable or all that stuff, but there's no next power in the Americas. It's Canada. And so the reason that's important for people who may or may not know is at the world, at the FIBA World Cup, um, you have to finish. There's seven teams from the Americas qualified and you have to finish uh, among the top two of those seven teams to automatically qualify for the Olympics. So if you concede, that USA is one of them, Canada would have to be first of the next six. And again, you know, based on the competition, um, you know, Canada should be like, there's no like maybe, or let's hope, <laughs> you know, they really should be. And, um, and so I think, you know, the next question, of course, who's going to play, how are you going to use them? Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't, let's just pretend that, that, um, Jamal Murray doesn't play because I'll be surprised if he does, just based on you know his injury and um, what I think will probably be a pretty long playoff run or long enough that he could use it as a reason. Um, you know, Shay and Lou have already said they're going to play. Uh, we've seen Nikhil out. Nikhil again, a guy who's I think is done being slept on. Like I think he's got a chance to be really good. I think he's really good in the format that Canada uses him. So uh, that's three. Um, you should get RJ, I think, and we'll see how they use him. Um, you know, and then after that, it's it's you know you, you know they're a little thin up front. You'd like it's Kelly Olenek and Dwight Powell, and it's funny like Chris Boucher. I think would be a really interesting player for Canada, um, but it's it's never quite come together, and it's you know I've heard varying issues right sometimes it's been you know chris hasn't been treated like hasn't been kind of approached the right way and other times it's like they been, haven't have been you know i don't know if the connection's been made with chris the right way i don't know i can't say for sure but the last you know i think he was talking he was thinking about it last year it was his contract year this year he says he'd be open to playing yeah. i presume he'll get asked um but long-winded saying like i think it's a team that um you know it, they have closers and they have depth and those two things and you have you know in Shea I think a guy who could probably go to that tournament maybe be the best player there yeah saw the Jokic maybe if if Jokic plays sorry I can't remember if is in or not um so I I should Google that, but, but <laughs> regardless, like he'll be, I think he, you know, he's got a good possibility of being the best guard, best ball handler, best yeah. in the, in all term. And so if that's your guy and you have enough support around them, um, pretty good coaching, <laughs> then uh, you know, like, I think you gotta, they gotta qualify. They gotta be in Paris next year. Yeah. Is there, is there anybody that
0: you think, cause as you talked about the the front court is a little bit slept on, but as far as the guys who have, helped move Canada basketball closer to their goals, despite not being NBA
1: talent. Is there anybody who a listener would appreciate hearing about these (laughs) things? Like every single guy who played in these windows, (laughs) right? Like, um, and it's interesting too, like, like they, uh, wow, I mean, you know, I'm a big Phil Scrub fan. Like, I think he's, you know, I think he's a really good player and he's made a really good career in Europe. He's a combo guard, can guard probably three positions. Doesn't say boo and can make threes, so you might you might want to have a guy like that around. Yeah. So the the other guy I think who played in the was very active in the qualifying windows. Who I think they'd be remiss not to find a spot for would be Cassius Robertson. Um, you know, he's just. I've asked, could he be an NBA player? And he kind of falls in that um, Brady Heslip category. I think he's better than Brady Heslip, like in terms of. What he can do with the ball in his hand and kind of create, maybe play a little point here or there. But, um, you know, probably just not quite robust enough defensively to last in the NBA. But he's legitimately probably one of the top 50 shooters in the world. Like, you know, I think through all stages of qual- so qualifying, he shot better than 50, like literally, I think 54 to 56% from three. Gets it off quickly, can get it off of the bounce, off the run. And so when you're playing with, like, um, so many guys you are going to have so much gravity, you know, if he's the guy on the other side of the floor, like, you got to have him. You mentioned Kyle Wilcher; That's an interesting one. He hasn't been able – he hasn't had much presence around the program because he's been in China and um, may still, but and I know for sure very recently, was subject to their COVID restrictions. And so he couldn't just – you know, it was like two weeks quarantine coming and going and you know, it just uh, wasn't practical for him to participate. But again, like uh he's like a six ten version of Cassius Cassius Robertson, like just an incredible shooter who can in his own way punish uh punish a mismatch because he's you know he's got that goofy little post game. So, you know, there's three guys I think, you know, I would go I would also mention um tommy scrub too so there's four guys who all kind of want a pure specialist in cash and then another the all three all four pretty elite shooters i'd say both scrubs are pretty versatile high-end defenders all super high iq players and i think you know if you can kind of find room for some of those guys it's also a really strong message to you know the the pool of players who you know, fly halfway around the world to go play in Chile, you know, and then back <laughs> right in the space of a weekend. Uh that, you know, that their efforts are rewarded, you know, where the chance comes. So so we'll see. It's gonna be pretty fascinating. Uh that roster construction is gonna be crazy. It's in the past because when I was a teenager, I had two summers
0: that I spent playing a tournament and then an ID camp at Gonzaga and Team Canada with like Pangos sacre Olinick, Wilcher. It was like a way to keep up with those guys' careers who I had met while I was down there. And now the team I didn't meet Nemhard, but he's also Gonzaga Canadian, right? And now it's like the depth has gone it used to just be that it was like the Gonzaga guys were on Team Canada, but now the depth has gotten so good that a lot of the well, I guess a lot of those guys are West Coast, but a lot of the, you know, guys from Ontario, Toronto, man. The team is so deep and the like and it also has the top end talent too. So yeah, it it should be, it should be really exciting. My fingers are crossed. We got, I think everyone's are right. Like, I mean, yeah. I think,
1: um, I just know, you know, some of the players and their families over the years. And then, and I also have come to know like the people within the organization have really just been trying to lift this thing over the finish line and made huge investments of time, effort, money, you know, by the standards of what's available to them to try and make it first class and uh you know the only thing missing is that signature moment that in turn would hopefully you know unlock maybe a decade of them right yeah. and uh you know i think you know i just think that that's the basketball as far as basketball come in you know the years i've been covering it um that is kind of the one little missing piece to really kind of you know, put the sport on an equal footing with anything else that's offered in the country, right? Like I think the Raptors win and their success the past decade has been a huge thing. Mm -hmm. I think the infrastructure, I always say like the most important thing that's ever happened to basketball in Canada was a bunch of guys my age growing up, playing and having no infrastructure whatsoever, becoming parents. And saying screw this, you know we're gonna we're gonna start our own AAU team. We're gonna start our own league. We're gonna start offering camps, and you know, and and that's really been the to me was the by far the number one reason. You know that guys like the RJ Barrett's of the world kind of had a platform to leap off from. Um, but you know the finishing touch would be a national team, and we've seen it a little bit on the women's side, but on the men's side, uh, just do something that. The, you know, nobody could ignore. And uh, it would be, you know, something epic at a world championship or even, of course, more at the Olympics. And, uh, you know, it, it would be, it'd be fun. It'd be a really cool thing.
0: It, man, when I, I grew up in a town of 700 people and growing up, but until I was probably about 15, there were the principals, Mr. Cameron, his house had a basketball hoop. My house had a basketball hoop that my mom put there because she played basketball, my, but my dad didn't. My dad had to coach so that I could have a team to play on in grade 12 so I could try and get like a scholarship to go play basketball somewhere. It was just like, but when I returned there this summer and I was doing carpentry work, there was like, it must have been like 40. There was only two basketball nets in the whole town, but now there's like 40. And so I can't imagine in that little town seeing it grow over the past 10 years, 12 seeing it it just has to be way bigger across like the whole country
1: too. It's, it's very cool. It's very cool. I mean, you're younger than me, but you've experienced it in in your own time frame. and you know, I won't bore you with what it maybe used to be like, but, um, the, uh, you know, what I'm really, really intrigued by is, you, you know, I remember when interviewing a bunch of guys on team Canada, so it was Kelly, Corey, Tristan, um you know uh andy routin's you know that era mm-hmm. and every one of them knew exactly where they were like who they were with what they were eating um you know the whole scene when vince carter uh won the dunk contest in 2000 like it was like so they were all between 8 and 12 years old mm-hmm. when it happened <clears throat> and you know fast forward 8 9 10 12 years they were kind of a, a product of that in a way. And, um, you know, so what I'm really, really fascinated by is kids who were eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 in 2019. Yeah. So we're talking, you know, they're starting to filter up, right? Like yeah. hey, we're going to start seeing them soon. Is, uh, you know, so 2028, 2029, 2030, 31, I would predict it's, mm-hmm. they're going to be, huge years for Canada across the landscape in terms of the draft and college and whatever other platforms kids are aspiring to then. And, uh, you know, so I think these kind of moments, they do kind of create bursts of imagination that sustain people where there's maybe already some interest or opens their eyes to what could be a passion. And, um, you know, we've, we've seen it at different stages. But I think this would be the biggest one yet, no doubt. And uh, a Canadian team, a national team, a men's national team, um, you know, doing getting it done internationally would be another huge moment like that.
0: Touchstone moments, man. They create they create these big ripple effects. Michael, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Is there anything you want to say to the listeners, the viewers before we get out of here? no
1: not at all just uh samson you do amazing work you're you know it's uh, your commitment's really impressive and you know and uh it's uh, you know it's fun to come on and talk basketball and uh know, i'm sure we'll be doing more of it soon
0: hell yeah and thank you that's like incredibly kind to say listeners um i don't really typically have to plug the person and say you know but if you're watching basketball in canada you know who michael grange is you're familiar with his work Michael, thank you for coming on. Listener, thank you for listening in. And whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.